Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. As you may have wondered, or maybe not, there hasn't been a lot of festival coverage as of late. Even though I have covered Toronto International Film Festival, New York Film Fest, Sundance, Slamdance, South by Southwest again, all since the last time there was a rock-solid festival coverage on here. I'm not going to lie, it's been pretty difficult to do remote coverage as of late, and I've ran into some technical difficulties in the recordings and, frankly, trying to publish. That's kind of one of the reasons episodes have been a little bit scarce in 2022. I'm working with what I have, trying to get quality out there, not just quantity. I wanted to compile, though, and not lose these interviews because they're with great artists and artists you should give your time to. Nadia Sold made the powerhouse documentary Larry Flint for President. Nicola Daly gave the warm look to the film Benediction. Justin Zuckerman made a film that should be taking the festival by festival circuit by storm, frankly, this year. That film, Yelling Fire in an Empty Theater. Will Lovelace and Dylan Southern absolutely put all the cards on the table for the amazing documentary Meet Me in the Bathroom, which covers the early 2000s indie scene in New York City. B.J. McDonald takes Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters to Horror Heights with Studio 666, and Vesla Kazakova, Mina Maliva, and Academy Award nominee Maria Bakalova get downright gritty and real with the new film Women, Don't, Women Do Cry. I want you to join me, please, for some wonderful discussions and some coverage of TIFF 2021, New York Film Festival 2021, Sundance 2022, Slamdance 2022, and South by Southwest 2022. And I'll give some recommended stuff at the end of this show from all the fests you should be checking out. I don't know where festival coverage is going to go from here. I'm, I'm going to continue to try to cover it remotely, try to be there. It doesn't matter, but I hope you enjoy this kind of compact, kind of big, brash episode. There hasn't been a lot of episodes here lately, so I hope you enjoy this. Why Larry Flint and why now? Well, I came across this archive when I was interviewing my uncle about just his life story. He um, was a music producer who worked with Leonard Cohen, and he uh, he had some pretty interesting stories. And so I uh, just sat down with him, and um, in the interview, he talked about uh, when he was Larry Flint's videographer during his campaign for president. So... I uh, was very interested in that because the stories were wild. And when I asked uh, what happened to the footage, he told me that um, there were 20 boxes of tape sitting in his storage facility um, and nothing had happened uh, in the past 33 years. So I digitized the tapes and um, saw that there was really a story that hadn't been told before. And I then... uh, got Larry's blessing to go forward as well and you know gained access to his archive. So I feel like the film, it takes on a different nuance depending on what's been happening in the world at the time. But um, while I was editing, Donald Trump was president, so there were obvious parallels. But right now um, with uh, First Amendment issues and, um, and uh, the attacks on 
uh, freedom of speech and also like freedom of thought, self-censorship. Um, I feel like it's a, it's a ripe time for a film that um, expresses that kind of anarchic punk attitude of kicking against the pricks. Um, so I think that uh, it's a little bit of an antidote to an uptight age. How do you think Larry would have done against somebody like Donald Trump? Do you, do you think that he was maybe so much ahead of his time, to be quite honest? I do. I do think that he was ahead of his time. Um, and it would, it would be a really interesting uh, runoff between the two. I definitely feel like Larry uh, and Donald Trump appealed with the same uh, populism um, and anti-establishment um, ethics. So, uh, but, but Larry was coming from a very different place. I mean, Larry was coming from, uh, a place of diversity in his cabinet and of, uh, just, you know, he, he was, he was raised in the second poorest County in, um, the States. And he, uh, he, he, he made a pledge to, um, you know, really do away with churches and turn every church in America into, a health food store, a free clinic, or um, uh, what was the other one? It was health food store, free clinic, or daycare center. So um, his his mentality um, was just you know very uh, inclusive and uh, against the same people who put Reagan in power and the same who were the same people who put Trump in power. Um, the you know the Jerry Falwells and the evangelicals of the world. So. Um, I think I think Larry would have won if there was a showdown. What do you think the hardest part of making a film like this is? Do you think it was sifting through all that archival material, or did you find your own heartaches here, there, and everywhere? I, I think that uh, the sifting through wasn't the hardest part. Um, I think that the hardest part of of making a film out of, uh, out of archival material is staying true to the story and not sensationalizing, not so, um, we, you know, we don't have voiceover. We don't even use any cards. We really use the, the voices of the people who were there, you know, so we rely heavily on, on Larry Flint's interviews and also on a lot of the verite. So, um, we didn't. We decided not to interview anyone who wasn't there. So, um, unless they were uh, on the ground during the campaign, uh, we we really skipped that because we didn't really want any talking heads just um, extrapolating on Larry Flint. So then, making a story of that is is a challenge. Um, so, but it's fun. It was, it was a good time. I guess spoiler alert, but if anybody's listening to this, I hope that you just watch the movie beforehand anyway. But was it a conscious decision from the beginning to have modern Larry only at the end? Were you maybe not even going to have him? Were you thinking about this from the get-go? Or was there actually a lot of interview done and it just didn't kind of make the cut? So I wanted to stay within the timeline of the story I was telling so I didn't want to include any information that uh, was known after the moment we are in the story. Um, and I also didn't want to see Larry. Uh, we had lots of interviews of Larry in the late 1980s after his wife had died. And even though we had this great you know, treasure trove of these interviews, 
I didn't show them until I, I didn't I didn't show him in that state until in the story we were there already and we see what he's been through we know what he's been through and we see he's a changed man and then uh, I saved the very uh, my, my like current day interview with him for the very end because I didn't want it to be looking back I wanted it to be you know I wanted the viewer to be like in the 1980s with him in his you know in all his glory as he's um, you know, running against uh, Ronald Reagan and the moral majority and not be just constantly like reflecting back. So um, yeah, that was a conscious decision. We had a lot of really good stuff, but um, it just wasn't one of those films. So um, a lot of the interview ended up on the cutting room floor and we really just have him there more as like a punctuation mark um, and a little uh, bit of like a kind of, he has a very defiant, um, heir to him in that he's gone through all of this and he's survived. And at that point, he really had kind of outlived all of his enemies and a lot of the people who actually uh, worked on his campaign. So he was um, kind of this like, you know, sole survivor. And then he, he died uh, a few months before the film premiered at Tribeca. Did he get to see the final uh, product before his passing? Yeah, he, he he did get to see it. It was during COVID, so the plan was going to be in the theater, and instead he had to watch it on the link. But um, yeah, he, I think he enjoyed it. I mean he he said uh, he said some good things, so that was good. Where do you fall politically? Do do you feel like you, as making as you were making this film, you were aligning more and more with what Larry was going for, or were you kind of there even before making the film? So I, you know, as, as making the film, as I was making the film, I, you know, became more and more interested in that history and in, um, you know, just, uh, you know, Larry's perspective and Althea's perspective. Um, but, uh, you know, where I fall in line politically is really where Larry Flint's um, politics lie, which is to the far left. And um, so that wasn't, it was, there was no conversion process there. But I, I really gained an appreciation for his tactics, especially um, just the fact that he is this satirical performance artist using comedy and satire, which is when it's effective, um, there's no smiley face at the end of it. There's no like, haha, I was just joking. It's left up to the reader or the viewer to uh, make up their mind at whether it's true or whether this is um this is a joke that leads to some truth so i gained an appreciation for just how savvy he was um in his tactics he i mean he really pissed off uh the right and um was you know one of the most hated uh enemies of um of, of reagan's america well isn't it weird that i guess seeing it now all this free speech advocates kind of going to the right why do you think that is why do you think that we're not getting on it honestly more of the left fighting for these free speech anything frankly at the moment why so when i um i went during like one of uh, my meetings with larry flint uh i asked him whether he thought that there were any limitations to freedom of speech and he said that, um, you know, the buck stops at hate speech. 
anything that is intended to harm a person or a group who you know are vulnerable and also are you know don't don't have the you know like making fun of someone in power who has a lot of uh capacity to fight back or just um you know they're they're not vulnerable they're you know he's punching up that's very different from saying something to harm someone and um so he yeah he definitely drew the line there and it's interesting how today a lot of hate groups i mean the same kind of hate groups who uh are responsible for Larry's shooting and these white supremacists are taking um you know sort of cloaking their actions and speech under uh, the First Amendment rights. So um, there is definitely uh, a there 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 is this um, co-option uh, of like of uh, First Amendment uh, rights by the by the right, and then there's also this fear on the left of saying something that steps out of line and. I mean, this is something that has uh, been plaguing comedians sort of who are on like the front lines of it for, for years, a kind of like beijing of uh, like having to kind of give their, um, their watered down act at a university and not, in order not to offend anyone. And now it's really reached the mainstream. So I, th I think it's, uh, it's really unfortunate that, uh, that there's this timidity on the left um, in regards to self-censorship and, um, and cancel culture. So um, my hopes are that, that uh, the film serves as a kind of antidote to that and um, a little, like, give, gives people a little bit of courage to speak their mind and not be afraid of, um, of the repercussions. I mean, I think that culture moves forward and it's, it's, it's a good thing when you know, things that we accepted in the past are no longer accepted. And I feel like we are living in a very revolutionary time, but sometimes during such, uh, you know, revolutionary times, it can be very constrictive in terms of like towing the line and like just uh, not, not offending the people who are making the change. So not, not offending the revolutionaries. So there's, there is a bit of a contradiction there. It's you know, sometimes in these times of like great um, tumult and an overturning of a system, it's not, this is not exactly the times of like being as um, open-minded or liberal. So there's a kind of illiberalism that exists when there's um, so much change happening. So hopefully we'll get through that and, um, and we, we won't have this permanent sort of icy effect on um, on freedom of speech um, from the progressive side that's making all this change. And, um, and hopefully there can be more toleration. I mean, democracy does not exist without toleration for the other. I mean, you, you must tolerate something that you hate. You know, you must tolerate uh, opinions that you loathe for there to be a, a, a robust democracy. Um, so it's, it is disturbing. And, um, and I feel like right now that's, um, for me, the most, uh, pertinent part of, um, message of the film. I mean, it's, it's, it's no longer this kind of comparison of, uh, Donald Trump to Larry Flint, you know, these two showmans, it's really, uh, thinking about first amendment rights and really what that means. Would you say that you're hopeful that we're going to come out 
better after all of this. Are you? I I am hopeful. I think that, uh, well, first of all, I do think that there's a pendulum that swings. Um, So I feel that as much as we're um, in a kind of constrictive time for uh, people speaking their minds and, and people, you know, people who are worried about offending, that's, um, you know, that that's never good because thought happens after speech. I mean, people have to be able to speak and to express themselves to have a healthy discourse. And so if that's not happening, then there's much less advancement of thought. So I, I do think that um, we are going to come out of this. I'm hopeful. Getting a little bit back into filmmaking, did you think that you were ever going to go from a Western into a documentary? Well, actually, where do you see yourself going from here? Was this something that you always wanted to do to tackle as many genres as you could? Yeah, I, I know it's not exactly the smartest way to brand oneself. Um, so, uh, you know, from a career don't perspective. Ever, don't ever pigeonhole yourself. Yeah, well, I, as I, I, I'm, I'm really interested in doing a lot of different things. So uh, I had never thought of tackling an archival documentary until one presented itself, you know, until I had, I discovered this footage. And, um, and then I'm, uh, I'm, I'm writing a play at the moment that is definitely going to gain me um, some, uh, some haters. <laughs> so, and that's, uh, it's, it's a play called Mama Bear and it's about the politicization of an anti-vaxxer. Um, so, I'm, uh, you know, tackling the <laughs> the uh, sort of wave of um, conspiracy theory that has uh, enveloped so many people. Uh, and then I'm also um, working on another project that uh, is, an, is a documentary that uh, tackles one of the sort of the origin stories of QAnon. So that is also going to, you know, probably gain me some some other, uh, some more love. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm interested in fiction and nonfiction alike. So, you know, I have a romantic comedy set in Topanga Canyon too. You know, it's, uh, it's broad, but um, I, I, I'm really grateful that this documentary about Larry Flint uh, was something that I, uh, I dropped other projects to pursue and kind of got bitten by the, the documentary bug. It's um, Definitely labor of love, but uh, I mean, it's, there's there's nothing more challenging um, than piecing together a documentary. And I have so much respect for editors and and documentary directors because it's um, it's not easy. What would you say the hardest part of of like the editing process was for this one? Was it really trying to get a story out of out of what you had, or was it? trying to just keep it within the time frame that you had it in? I think the hardest part was not sanitizing Larry Flint um, in, uh, in order to please, uh, you know, prospective um, buyers. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I definitely received notes about making Larry Flint more likable or taking out a scene or, you know, censoring something and I feel like it's sacrilegious to censor Larry Flint and I I, it was important for me to include things that offended me even though you know 
I had like a gut reaction to like take it out because I was like, oh, I hate, I hate it when he says that. Like that's such, that's terrible. Like, but I think that it's, it's not really, it's, it's much less important to like the man than to like be taken through the story as it happened and hear the things that he said, even if they offend you. So, um, yeah, I think the heart, the, the, the most challenging part was sticking to my guns and, uh, and definitely, um, sticking up to my decisions with, um, you know, my, my producing partners and, and sales company. So that was, um, you know, I feel like that's like, that's the challenge of all filmmakers is to like be true to the art and be true to the story as opposed to making something that, um, is supposed to cater to the palette of, um, you know, the quote unquote mainstream. So, uh, I, I feel, I'm, I mean, I'm very satisfied with the result and I'm very grateful for the fact that I did stick to my guns with, um, you know, all the, all the major decisions. When did you know that you wanted to become a filmmaker? Was it a particular film, a particular filmmaker what really inspired you to grab the camera and start telling your own stories? I was a uh, directing theater before, and it was I started watching Werner Herzog films. And I know that this is almost like very typical at this point because he is somebody who I feel like inspires a lot of people to be a filmmaker. So I'm like I'm basically um, in one of the the multitudes of people who have, um, you know, jumped off the, uh, into the deep end and, you know, made films, uh, with sort of whatever means possible. Um, so, uh, yeah, my, my early films were extremely low budget and, uh, were made with a lot of favors from people. And then you kind of exhaust those favors. And, and then I was fortunate enough to, uh, to get like, um, serious financing for the Flint film and to have the luxury of, of working with, um, you know, some excellent collaborators. But uh, it, was, it was watching uh, this documentary about, uh, about um, the making of uh, Fitzcarraldo. It's um, by Les Blank. And um, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's hilarious. It's called Burden of Dreams. And um, it's probably like, it, it shows just like how tough it is to make a film. But after watching that, I was like, there's no way I'm going back to theater. Um, just being on this, like out on location and the immediacy of telling the story that way. I mean, I was already starting to like bring audiences to weird locations to show them, you know, to, to get them immersed in a, a theatrical experience. So uh, it just made sense that that was the next step was to just you know, to have a camera and filming uh, those locations. Did you have any formal training on the camera or are you just going, going, just grabbing it and seeing what happens? Yeah, I didn't have any formal training. I was started working for filmmakers. Um, so I, I started working for a wonderful documentarian, um, Alison Chernick, who made, um, uh, she, she was making a documentary about Matthew Barney and Bjork at the time. So that was my first time on set. And then I, I worked for the, um, this legendary New York indie company called Forensic Films, uh, Scott McCauley of Filmmaker Magazine. He and his, um, his wife, Robin, 
they produced a lot of uh, really great indie films um, with forensic films, and they and it's still um, they're, they're still or she, he's still producing films. Uh, so those were those were my that, like formative uh, training in film, but it wasn't through school. It was uh, through working in the industry. I hate to say industry. Industry is a terrible word. We're working with filmmakers. <laughs> I never worked in the industry. I never worked in sales or distribution or like as an agent. It was always with people who were crazy enough to make a film. I feel like we always call it industry. It's just what we do. <laughs> yeah, it's an icky word. <laughs> well, Nadia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Robert. It was a pleasure. I'm I'm curious first and foremost. What was your time like in North Korea doing documentaries? Because even even before we, we get to like Benediction and TIFF, tell me about that. Oh, North Korea was um, fascinating. Um, oh my gosh, now I'm going to forget which year we went, but um, so it was a while ago now. It was like 2007 or something like that. Um, it was a documentary, it was a bonkers documentary about um, about sort of how you could take North Korean film ideals and make them into a film in Australia and convince people like to use, you know, to look after the environment. So it was all based on the director had got, um, I don't know if you know this, but Kim Jong-un had written a book, well, Somebody had written a book and his name's on it <laughs> um, on how to make a good film, which I have a copy of on my bookshelf, weirdly. And, um, you know, it's got like the Ten Commandments and how you make a great film. And, and so she followed, she followed these rules and made a short film, which is a film within the film. Um, but we went to North Korea for three weeks, I think, and, and interviewed a lot of their directors, cinematographers, production designers, stars and... Um, talked about their film industry and how they make films. And it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Well, you go from the yeah. days of documentary and now you're doing a period piece. What do you think the hardest part of doing a film like Benediction is? I think the challenges of Benediction was, have you seen it? Have you watched it? I have, have I have. It? It's yeah. absolutely stunning. Your lighting, especially in like just conversation pieces that are happening inside you didn't overlight it like a lot of cinematographers tend to do in that situation. You're not trying to add this moody, weird darkness. You really captured the moments and, and you, you added a little bit something more to it. So I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was, um, I think the challenge of it was that it's not a biopic as we would think of a normal biopic of a film. It's, a, it's very much a Terrence Davis film so um written and directed by him and he's been he's sort of like a british auteur for many many years so he's made many films so um in that sense it sort of slips through time and space if you like in a poetic lyrical way so it's not necessarily a sort of conventional you know that he was born here and then this happened you know it's kind of it's back and forth it's more about his search for meaning in life and his, you know, his relationships with men and women. So, um, so in that sense, I guess that was probably the challenge because it wasn't about sort of 
different time periods because it spans sort of 1915 to this early, very early 60s. But it wasn't about sort of visually making it different for different time periods because I knew that it would, because the way he'd written a script, you know, it sort of all melds into one. So it's kind of like to soon imagines this time and then his youth and then it goes to him being old and back again. And so you can't sort of go, right, we'll make this section look like this and this section because all, all the sections are together. So it's, um, that makes it a bit trickier. <laughs> that was probably, yeah. And then the other challenging thing about it is that he um, wants to use sort of visual effects um, and Terence is sort of known for classical lyrical poetic filmmaking and then but he's sort of combining the two disciplines you know visual effects and I don't think people sort of think of Terence Davis and think of visual effects so it's quite interesting well even past that there's a lot of archival footage uh like black and white kind of stuff did you know that this was going to be a part of the film to begin with and were you trying to think about that and how you were going to do the scene that came before came after was amalgamated into that did you know any of that beforehand Yes, he'd written, um, he'd been writing, Terence had been writing a script for about five years, a long time, so, and he'd done a lot of research, and he'd already researched the archive that was available for World War One. so he had looked at which, not exactly which clips he was going to use, but he was pretty certain he knew which sections he wanted to use, so in the script, for example, at the beginning, they go into a uh, Sassoon and his brother go into a theatre and then the curtain raises and there's the archive footage underneath. Um, that was written into the, that sort of thing is written into the script. So it's, it, it's quite specific because um, Terence has done a lot of research on, on Sassoon's life and um, he did it with a quiet passion for Emily Dickinson. You know, he used archive footage there. So I think he's sort of expanding on that now in, in Benediction and, and utilising it a bit more to sort of thread it through the, the whole film. So it's quite interesting, I think, to, to not... So I knew from the beginning that we were never going to shoot anything like in the trenches or anything like that, you know. Um, we probably didn't have the budget to do that anyway, but... Um, I think it's fascinating from a storytelling point of view because it's sort of about Sassoon's trauma of the war that's inside of him. So using archive for that is kind of, I don't know, I think that's fascinating. Did you think 2021 you were going to be a cinematographer or did you think going throughout your career, maybe you'd be at something different at this point or did you always want to be a cinematographer? I... I was, I came to it when I was about 20, 21. I went, I did, I studied um, American studies in uh, university in England and that involved a year abroad. I was also doing film theory, but that was sort of like, you know, um, Laura Mulvey and, uh, you know, all that sort of the theory behind watching films. And, um, but because I was doing American studies, I went to California University of Santa Cruz for a year on a, like an exchange. And um, and they had practical film equipment, so we did courses, documentary making, and uh, splicing together film. It was a long time ago, <laughs> and, um, and we made short films. And I think I shot five people's short films, and um, I was like, 
is this a job? I, ho I really hope this is a job because this is what I would like to do. And because nobody in my family was in the arts, so it was kind of, you know, I didn't, even though I'd watched movies and I'd taken photographs as a younger person, I'd never really thought, oh, you can work in, in film. That wasn't really something that, you know, you could ever imagine, I think, you know, when you don't, when you don't have a direct family member or somebody that you know works in film, it's sort of a, nobody at school in the careers department tells you, you know, you can work in film. Nobody ever says that. <laughs> Doing a lot of, I guess, television around doing feature films right now, do you find television to be easier or harder? Do you like that faster paced environment? Or do you prefer to always go back and, and, and do that feature film and spend your time and, and get things right? Um, I don't necessarily think that one is faster and one is quicker. It totally depends what kind of film or what kind of TV show you've been on. I mean, I've done the letdown for Netflix and in Australia and ABC in Australia and, um, that was quite quick because that was a comedy. So you were shooting like eight, 10 pages a day with babies, which was really, you know, that was a talk about challenging. Um, and then something like Gentleman Jack, which is a HBO show that I've just finished. Um, you know, it's a bit slower paced because it's period drama. Um, and then some films I've done are quite quick because they've only got a million pounds or you know so it, it totally depends but what attracts me to them is the story and the characters like I always want to do something that I would love to sit and watch as an audience member that's what I look for when I read a script I want you know if I'm going to sit in the dark for two hours I want a journey that I'm going to go on with the, with those characters you know so when I read as a as an audience member and as a cinematographer that's what I look for well, even before cracking into the industry at 20, would you say that you were finding the kinds of art that you were looking for growing up? Or did you find yourself having to, I guess, create it as you were going along, the things that you really did want to see? Gosh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I grew up all over the world. So um, my dad was a mining engineer. So we moved around a lot. I was born in South Africa. We lived in Paris and Australia and uh, America so um, even though my parents weren't in the arts they were big they loved you know galleries and art galleries and and and, and going to the movies and so it was it was not like it was mum and I used to watch films all the time you know um, I remember I think I was about 15 and we watched um, uh, Vim Vendor's um, My Own Private Idaho and um, I was like blown away. I was like, what, you know, can you can do that with filmmaking? That's incredible. So um, I was always fascinated by it. It just, it was never a, a sort of, it just wasn't kind of possible that, you know, you thought, oh, well, I can do that. So it, there was a lot of art. I mean, mum and I used to go to art galleries all the time and, and wherever we went, whichever country we went to on holiday or whatever, we'd go and look at the local art and, so it was always part of my um, psyche, if you like. It was just, it took me a, a while to work out what I was going to do. Well, what can we expect from you coming up other than the HBO show? I'm just about to start a new TV show called Half Bad, which is a Netflix show, which is a new one. 
and then who knows what will happen. <laughs> <laughs> who knows what will happen next year. Um, but, yes, that's going to take up the next few months of my life, the new show. Um, and Gentleman Jack was sort of the first half of the year because, um, unfortunately, COVID has slowed everything down. So, um, so shows tend to take a bit longer these days. How do you feel like you were staying creative during during this pandemic? These these crazy times. Were you staying artistic in whatever ways that you that you could, even if you couldn't get behind the camera with your big <laughs> with your big crews and and do do the actual sets? Yeah, absolutely. I did um, in our first lockdown, which was in twenty twenty in Britain. Um, I was sort of well. It's interesting when you talk about benediction because. Um, we had started that in sort of February 2020, and then we all know what happened in March. And we, I think we were three days away from filming and we got shut down. So we all sort of went home and, and the crew were like, oh, we'll be back in three weeks or something, you know, and it was four months late, you know, four months later, I think that things opened up here, but we ended up shooting it September, October 2020. So in a way, it was quite good because we could carry on doing pre-production and some of the things that we maybe we hadn't quite nailed. Um, and um, it was fascinating because Terence is a person who doesn't have a mobile phone and, and, and you know, if you ring him, you ring him on his landline. So we got him on Zoom <laughs> and um, he learnt Zoom and um, we did some pre-production in that sort of lockdown period when we had lots more time to work things out and, there were certain visual effects sequences in the film that the visual effects supervisor could previs during that time. And then obviously we all shared those files and we could all comment and get on a Zoom call and do some more work. So that was quite good. And also I did a short film, which you may have seen called Swan Lake Bath Ballet, which went viral and now has like five million views or something amazing which was a, a short film that we did all during lockdown, which is um, 27 dancers around the world um, that we all filmed. We filmed remotely doing Swan Lake choreography in their own bathtubs. So that was quite fun. I mean, that took three weeks to do a three minute film because it was all remote and they filmed on their phones and, and we could see what they were filming. And, you know, I was sort of directing, if you like, you know, left a bit, right. <laughs> And we were trying to light it with whatever lamps they had in their house. And so that was incredibly creative because you sort of had to think outside the box on how we were going to make something remotely. But also the director said at the beginning, you know, I don't want this to be a viral phone video that everyone sees. I want it to look really good and be cinematic. So it was quite challenging doing that remotely in 27 different countries. So. Nicola, thank you so much for coming on here today. I wish you nothing but luck. I'm very excited to see all your new projects. And I hope everybody checks Benediction out because your work especially is fantastic in this film. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You have like a kinship to Mini DV. What is it about that format that you really gravitate towards? I think first and foremost, I love the look of mini DV. It has this baked in aesthetic already. So 
for example, when we made this film, it, there are parts of it that are very either like underexposed or overexposed to it, but I really like those flaws and it's the kind of, I mean, it's what I used when I was growing up and making YouTube videos when I was younger and it, when I use mini DV, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, it's more like play than it is like work. And so I really love that. And I also love that it's, it's so cheap to use. It's way better than, uh, save a lot of money using these. And also the fact that when you shoot on mini DV, you have the ability to do a lot that you normally can't do with a larger, nicer camera where, uh, I mean, we could just, when we were filming, we could just do takes, you know, over and over and we can move the camera around. We can move around and shoot wherever we wanted. No one stopped us. So, uh, I think it, there's just a ton of benefits and things I love about mini DV. Well, even the audio sounds really fantastic on this film. Were you recording to dat keeping it like old school or like, how were you doing the recording on this? Oh, thank you. Cause I was worried about the quality of the audio, but that, uh, we mainly used, we had both a boom mic and lavalier mics for it. The weirdly enough, I think it was during a rehearsal or something where I was kind of showing someone the mini DV camera and I like kind of messed it up when I was doing that. And then it just made the interior mic just sound awful. So it was just totally, it was pretty much just unusable, but uh, there might be a few times where we quickly cut to it and I think it works out all right. But it, uh, yeah, we mainly stuck to a exterior, you know, kind of system for that. There's some about this film. I really hope everybody checks this out. It is like this long lost, I guess, indie film in the late nineties that would have played something like Sundance back then, or even just a long lost mumblecore film. What were some of your influences growing up and were you really trying to grab from that making this film? I think that I really got influenced through um, the mumblecore and like the French new wave. And then uh, more so uh, in the past few years where I started watching, um, for example, I'm a big fan of Nathan Silver, who is a independent director who uh, is from Brooklyn. And I was at, very much inspired by his film, Exit Elena, which is kind of like this very low budget. I think, I don't know if it was shot on any DV, but something like that. And then a lot of the other mumblecore films that I watched a good amount in college. And then also um, leading up to me preparing for this film, a lot of the films by Ken Tucker Audley, who I like a lot, uh, the Duplass brothers, uh, films in those in that world really inspired me. When you were mentioning using mini DV growing up, did you find it easy or hard to, I guess, find the kinds of art that you wanted growing up? Or did you find yourself more and more having to create the art that you wanted and things that you wanted to see? I think we found, me and my friends found a lot of the art that we loved on YouTube at that time by people who were making really silly videos. I think we were really inspired by like the SNL digital shorts back then. Um, those kinds of like, they weren't really that great looking all the time, but my friends and I would, you know, I mean, we would uh, 
just meet up in the backyard and like either I'd feel my friend like wrestling a teddy bear or something. And that was just the funniest thing to us. And we do it on MiniDB and we do these, we do in-camera effects like black and white or sepia or weird diamond shapes and stuff like that. And those were, uh, you know, the things that made me feel like this, I didn't get excitement from most things other than like getting to create little stupid videos like that. And uh, I had made in college and after that more kind of professionally looking things. We had nicer cameras and we had box trucks at times and all this nice equipment. And it was often very stressful. It was, it's compared to this, it, I'd say it's more difficult to do. It's harder to, you can't just run off with a camera and go shoot something. You need to like set the lights. You need to set up the lenses. You need to make sure everyone is on the same page from the makeup person to the gaffer, to the ACs and the AD. But with MiniDB, it's just you and you can take an actor and maybe a sound person if you want and then just be like, oh, let's try that. And uh, that freedom, you know, we had that when we were younger and uh, I kind of try to achieve that with this, if that answers your question. It does. But taking that minimalistic approach, what would you say that you learned the most bringing that to a feature this time? Um, do you mean like, what did I learn from making the feature or going into the, into the feature? Honestly, anything like, what did you learn the most coming out of the, out of this feature now from, it could be from pre to actual production to post-production. Just what, it, what, what were some of those things that you learned the most? I think what I learned the most is that within that freedom is there is still some discipline that is needed there. Uh, maybe I had a little too much freedom at times. I shot most of the film myself. I hadn't had a lot of planning in terms of shot listing and things like that. And we did it on the fly, but saying that also it's, I really loved shooting on mini DV and I think I'd like to stick with it. And I think it's worth pursuing more because it, is just so much more exciting and enjoyable and just feels worthwhile to shoot this way as opposed to what seems to be a more static, traditional kind of play by the rules kind of thing that a lot of, you know, most other films are made. And I like that little rebelliousness that comes with it. And uh, I, yeah, I just love it. Are, are most of these actors your friends or was this a pretty rigorous and, and in-depth casting process trying to get exactly what you were looking for? Some of the actors were my friends and some of them were friends of friends or people within the Brooklyn comedy or Brooklyn uh, film community. I But we didn't really have like a very rigorous kind of casting process. It was more... For example, the lead actress went to our college and she acted in a lot of our uh, film school films. And she's super talented. She lived here at the time. So I cast her. And then some other people I had seen in other either shorts or features by local filmmakers. One of the characters uh, who plays the boyfriend is um, my producer also for the film. And he's a, I think he's a great actor. So we cast him too. But a lot of it was just local people who I had seen in other things and I wanted to work with them. 
was really surprised that people, you know, were so willing and excited to be in a movie shot on mini DV for no money. That was a surprising and super uh, lucky that people seemed into it. How excited are you to get the film out right now? The world is still in a little bit of a <laughs> nobody knows where it's going place, but you do have a format like Slam Dance to broadcast it around the world. Are you excited for things like this and, and going down the road or where actually do you see the film going from here? Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely stoked about it playing at Slam Dance. I think it's something I never expected. Uh, I don't think any of us at all expected. I really didn't think we'd get at anything, but we got lucky and some people really saw some value in it. And it's, yeah, it's fantastic. I really don't know what's going to happen next. We we're just going to play um, uh, on this site, No Budge. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's run by uh, Ken Tucker Oddly, who's a great filmmaker. Two and of your uh, earlier shorts played on that as well, right? They did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah, my one of my shorts, Christian's First Cigarette, which is shot on mini DV. It played on no budget. And then I was like, Oh, someone kind of likes this mini DV thing. Maybe I should keep trying it. And so that kind of gave me the inspiration to do this on mini DV. And we were supposed to play on that, uh, in December, but then in November we heard from slam dance. And so then we paused that to do this. And, um, I don't know what's hap- what will happen next. I don't know if uh, you know my, now it might play some more festivals possibly, or where else it might live. But uh, yeah, it's uh, there's a good chance it'll eventually be um, on no budget. But I very much encourage. But I don't know for sure when that would be. And I, you know, I encourage people to check it out on Slam Dance if they have the time now that it's virtual and anyone can access it for only ten dollars. And you're. From my my understanding, you're also a coffee aficionado. When I learned that, I was a little shocked that you weren't adding more coffee into this film. Can we can we expect more coming from that? A- anything that you've been doing in the in the coffee world these days? Yeah, yeah, you really did your research. I love that. Uh, yeah, I actually, <laughs> just yeah, I came back recently from my job at a, a coffee roastery, and I'm writing a script right now where the main character works at a coffee roastery. So it's going to be, uh, at least now, the next movie is going to be a lot more coffee centric. It's, uh, I have a big fascination with coffee and cigarettes and I got cigarettes into this one a good amount. And I'm hoping to up the coffee factor in the next one for sure. I think it's a, something that all characters, uh, it just makes movies more, um, I don't know, just cooler when there's coffee and cigarettes involved. Can you tell us any more on that, on that project coming up or anything else that you're working on? Uh, I can do a little more. I'm still writing it. I'm still in the early stages of it, but it's during the first year of the pandemic, I spent a lot of time watching these movies, these like European summary movies like uh, Purple Noon or some Romero films and things like that. And I really fell in love with them. And I got the inspiration to make a film that kind of, that takes place in New York in the summer and kind of feels like a European summer 
within New York, where it's a lot of characters hanging out at cafes and bars and having this, you know, bright, summery feeling. I think my last film was maybe a little grimmer and grayer, and so maybe make New York seem a little nicer and brighter. And I'm most likely doing that on mini-DV as well. Uh, I'll see how things go, but I really like that style, and I'd like to uh, progress and get better at it. Well, Justin, I want to thank you so much for coming on here. It seems like every single year at Slam Dance, there's a film or a filmmaker. Last year, it was uh, Skinner Myers. This year, it seems to be you. There's always somebody coming out of Slam Dance, and I truly think that it was you this year. And I really hope everybody checks this film out. So, thank you so much. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for the kind words and your appreciation, and enthusiasm. I really it means a lot. And thank you for getting the word out and for doing this podcast. It's awesome. Of course. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Full of non-music documentary projects in the intervening years that didn't quite pan out. And we, we didn't intend to go back to the subject matter, but um, we've, we've got a friend who works at uh, publishers in England and he sent us the galleys to Lizzie's book, uh, knowing that we'd have an interest because of LCD. And then when we, when we read the galleys, it, it was just like, oh, this is a great story. And this, and I think just being a bit nostalgic for that time ourselves, like it hardly seemed possible that it was 20 years ago, but it was, and, or it was certainly approaching that at that point. And I think as we read it, we were just like, oh, there's something exciting in this. And, you know, the, the connection with James through Sharp and Play the Hits obviously helped because we, we kind of had that in with one of the artists. But I, I think it was more just that, the kind of scope of the book and the ability to look back at a time that seems like yesterday, but is actually, you know, approaching is two decades ago and how much the world's changed in those two decades as well. It just felt weirdly that time seems quite innocent now uh, when you look at everything that's happened in between. So, yeah, I think it was just a, a sort of serendipitous uh, connection with Dan at Faber who sent us, the book before it was published and um yeah and also the weird connection that lizzie was actually at the lcd show and that's where she kind of had the idea for the book um there were just like all these connections that felt like it was something worth pursuing well speaking of scope it is a ballsy move to make a documentary like this it's purely archival where did you even start trying to find this footage um, i mean i think Oh, sorry, because I think the first thing we did actually was to decide that we didn't want to and couldn't make that whole book into a film. You know, that book covers 10 years and, and we felt that, and it, you know, it's brilliant for it, but we felt that the film we would want to make would be the sort of early years. I guess the early years of those bands, the, the, like the back end of the 90s and the first few years of the 2000s. So we made a decision to, to you know, to shorten the time length and, and kind of focus it on a few a few key bands because the books kind of covers everything, which is amazing. And, but, it, but that exists. And so this was something different. Yeah. I think the, because the book is so exhaustive and it spans a decade in itself, you know, one of our original conversations was like, is this a, a four part series? Is this, you know, do we, do we break it down in those terms? And then I think the thing that was really, and I always think of it like, like a superhero movie, the the bit that I like in superhero movies is the origin story, where they kind of get the powers and discover who they are, and um, less interested in the kind of 
battles later. So it's kind of, uh, but for, we just felt like the more interesting stories were at the beginning of the book and when that scene was nascent and just emerging in New York. And then sort of to circle back to your actual question, I, I, I think COVID was part of the reason we ended up going 100% um, archive. We, all, we always knew it was going to be an archive heavy film and we didn't want to do that sort of standard talking heads, rock doc interviews where you see the people as they are now. We, we wanted it to be immersive and in the past, but COVID hitting and not being able to go to New York to shoot anything new meant that we our, our kind of hand was forced, but also in a way that we were really happy about because we could make a film that just dropped you into 1999 and then let the story unfold in that period. And I think it was just, it was a really, really kind of uh, exhaustive process in finding archived, finding people, you know, online who posted a picture, you know, in the early days of the internet and then, you know, making these connections of music fans from New York at that time who had been there with a video camera and, you know, going across to New York and meeting up with people who were part of the scene um, in the early early days pre-COVID um, of the documentary, I mean. But um, so, yeah, it was just, it was... a. A, a real team effort with everyone in the film of just finding these amazing sources for documentary. And I think um, Christian, who's one of the producers on the film, sent an email yesterday saying that I think 57% of the finished movie is archived that no one's seen before. That came from us kind of searching and finding and doing detective work. And it was quite nice to hear that number because uh, I think quite often you see like the same old archive or, you know, we had to be quite uh, industrious with how we found it. Um, yeah. Well, then you also tackled the tricky subject matter that is 9-11 because it could overtake a film and then you could also use too little of said event in, in progressing the story forward. Was that something that you really had to hammer down on before you even started doing this film? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we knew that was going to be the the key moment in the film, really, and um, and and we talked a lot about how to approach that. You know, I'm sure we had more conversations about that than anything else, really. Um, what we felt we should do is try and tell that tell that moment with footage from people who were there. You know, who so it's all rather than lots of news footage, it's kind of constructed from you know footage from that people shot on the day you know and in the film you see Paul Banks is there on on the day of 9-11 um on the streets and, and and lots of the other footage is, is from people who we found online and we found through research who filmed stuff on that day and that's that's kind of how we uh that's that's what makes up that scene yeah. um but we were we were always you know very aware that we had to treat it sensitively and as part of the story, you know. Um, I think the book does it really, really well. And we just wanted to make sure that the way we put it into the film was as it was experienced by the characters in the film. And that, as Will says, the perspectives of it were coming from the voices of the people in the film because, you know, that scene was burgeoning just before 9-11. And I think 9-11 you know, put the world's eyes on New York City at that moment in time. And one thing that we'd never seen before was, well, how did how, 
how did that affect the creative community? And I, I think, you know, in Lizzie's book, it was really interesting to kind of think, you know, people were saying, Jesus, if that can happen in our city, it, it could happen anywhere, anytime. Let's just like focus on creating stuff and making stuff. And then you get that kind of exodus over to Brooklyn and, and you know, really interesting thick things happening creatively. So we wanted to kind of, it, it's a centerpiece in the film, but we wanted to treat it with the sensitivity that, you know, it should be, and also really, really relate it to the stories of the, the artists and bands in the film. Well, you have two documentaries now, music documentaries, that are true love letters to New York, quite frankly. The, the passion and the eye that you have for that city, not even being from that city, is, is pretty cool to see. Where did that passion and love come from? Or do you even, or do um, you even like New York? I, 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 I love New York, and I think the passion and the love for it probably at first comes from movies, from growing up and seeing it from across the pond and just, you know, and then I think even more so, the first time I ever went to New York was in the period that this film is set. And I, and I think it was kind of probably what was happening in music that drew me there. And um, yeah, I think it's just, it's just a really, really fascinating city. And, you know, I don't think I could live there now. I think I'm a bit too old now, but it, it feels like a city you can live in in your twenties and just like have the best time in, in the world, basically. Anything to add, Will? Um, nothing, nothing is well thought out as that, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's strange how it works out that two guys based in London end up making two films in New York. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's weird. This, I feel like this, this same story couldn't have happened anywhere else on the scale it happened and, and the kind of with, and I don't think people will be interested in talking about it 20 years later if it would, if it happened in a different city. So I think like, I don't know. It's a, that's a bad answer. Yeah. But. I think also the, the film taps into it. There's a certain sort of mythology about New York. You know, there's a lot of, you know, iconic artists and scenes that have emerged from that city. And I think sort of placing the turn of the millennium in that lineage was something we were interested in doing. You know, what is it about the city that attracts people there to change themselves or to become someone different or to you know, be a person they couldn't be in the town that they came from. I, th I think it's a city that kind of draws people towards it and allows for people to be whatever they want to be because there's a certain amount of anonymity. You know, you, you, you're less... Um, you can be as visible or as invisible as you want to be and you can, you know, be part of a scene that you create. It just feels like a place that's full of possibility. Um, but also a place that you sort of have to learn the rules of and you have to respect. And I don't know, it's just... Overall, though, I just think it's a very cinematic place. It's very, like, as a setting for a story, it, it, it offers so much. Well, time can really change things one way or the other, always. The fact that you two have been a directing duo for this long and a team for this long, do you find it easier or harder to work together what are some things that you've learned from being a filmmaking duo? Um, somehow it's still working. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think not, not analyzing it helps. <laughs> Cause I think if we did, that's when the, like we'd start to like pull at the threads, but I think it's just, it's just, it's having a shorthand. It's knowing what each other are thinking. 
it's sort of being able to, you know, take the weight or pick up the slack when, you know, especially as we've got older, you know, just with life things, it means that you can kind of like, you don't, you're not bearing all the weight at once. And it's, it's, you know, anyone doing anything, whether telling a story or making something, it's good to ha have a sounding board, like both ways, you know. Um, I think this would have yeah, been... Yeah, I, I, think, I think there's no secret to it that we've cared to kind of, you know, pull back the curtain and, and investigate. I was going to say, I think this film particularly would have been, a, considering the two years that everyone's had, would have been a pretty lonely film to make if it was just one person on their own, you know, like there was a lot, you know, back to your earlier question about how we found archive and stuff. We all sort of sat down in the UK when we went into lockdown in March two years ago, we all kind of like spent a few days and then thought, right, okay, let's use this as an opportunity. We're stuck in our houses. Everyone else is stuck in their apartments or houses. Like how do we, how do we, you know, how do we find all this archive? How do we reach out to people? And I think that helped for sure being kind of not, not a single person, you know, like doing it, doing it as a duo and, and the team we, that we kind of built around us as well. Yeah. I think, yeah, on this particular film, we were way more than a duo as well, because it was just the sheer volume of archive and potential kind of avenues the film could have gone down. You know, it, it was a, it was a very unwieldy thing. So we just had a great team that included, you know, the editors, producers, uh, archive researchers. It was really, really, because we made it during COVID times, it became something that felt very, very team-based and collaborative. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a really kind of enjoyable process despite the kind of times we were living through as we made it. How much ended up on the cutting room floor or did you really just try to hone in on what you wanted to do? Um, a lot, I'd say, you know, in terms lot. of like the, the, the process because of, and again, like, because of COVID, we weren't able to make it in a sort of traditional way. We didn't sit down and do a load of interviews up front and then be able to build the film like that just because of everyone's stuck in their, their homes in, you know, so, and also lots of the interviews are archive anyway. So it was kind of built in a un, unconventional way, I suppose. And yeah. I mean, it, it uh, wasn't, it wasn't because we, we, we were very like cognizant at the start that we had this, book that was kind of 800 pages long and we had to you know find a way to not just make a translation of the book to the screen and repeat what is already there in one medium but we did have to get its essence and boil it down to 90 minutes 100 minutes so there was a we kind of had a writer's room at the beginning where we where we talked about you know each of the artists and the potential of who we would include who we wouldn't include um, and, you know, we very much thought of it as looking at how we would tell the stories that each one of them kind of had the feeling of a coming of age story, that that, that was the sort of the analog genre from fiction films that we would kind of look to to see how we could tell a coming of age story for each kind of character stroke band within the film. Um, but you know, even even having that process of like really focusing on the stories we wanted to tell, we still ended up with a first cut that was probably four and a half, five hours long. And then it's just, you know, you want to, because you sort of get to know the characters as you're making the film, you, you want to do them justice, but you also know that you can't 
you know, take a detour and noodle about in what it was like to make this album or that album that actually the story we want to tell is about the, the human experience of this time. And it's not a kind of behind the music. It's, it's, it's you know, creating hopefully an exciting snapshot that reflects what it was like at the time for these bands. And it, it was a real shame because we, we, you know, we couldn't mention everybody. You never could in 90 minutes. Uh, but hopefully the documentary will encourage people to explore that scene and discover some of the people that didn't make it into the into the film or go to Lizzie's book and, you know, get the the more kind of exhaustive, like 10, 10 year document of that time. Is there another band or another time frame that would ever get you back to one of these kinds of documentaries? Or do you think that you're done now with a, really the music documentary as a, as a whole? I mean, you're asking us about seven days after we left the edit and I'm, I'm now just completely shaken so right now so, right now right now no uh but if you ask us in a month we'll probably have a different answer are, are you guys working on anything right now can we expect anything else coming up um like I, i'm working like I'm working on some stuff separately, but like we're about to kind of like think about what our next collaborative projects would be in terms of whether it's a documentary or a, a, a feature. But yeah, yeah, it was a kind of race to the, race to the line to uh, finish this one. And so kind of all we're thinking about is trying to sleep at the moment. Yeah. Do you know where the film's going to go from here or is that kind of just up in the air still? I think that's comes down to how it's received at Sundance, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm not fully versed in what's happening next to it, but I, you know, there's a lot of buzz and like, you know, I'm getting messages asking if I can send people copies to watch and stuff. And uh, so hopefully, um, you know, we'll find out at Sundance where it goes next. A lot of appetite for it. Well, I do think it's a really fantastic film. It encapsulates this time frame i think better than any documentary has for any kind of genre of music it really is one of the best of the of the 2000s music documentaries so i want to thank both of you for making the film and honestly i hope it does really well at sundance and going forward it's great to see that vice picked this up as well so hopefully we're going to see like a bigger role out of this but yeah thank you both for coming on here any projects you ever have in, in the future, please come back on. I, I'd love to have you on again. We'd love to come back. Perfect. Yeah, thank you so thank much. You. Cheers, Robert. Thank you. All right. <clears throat> Hi, Robert. How's it going? How are you? Let's, let's just start it off. How are you? I'm very good. It was, uh, we actually had some rain this morning here in L.A., which was kind of great. So I woke up peacefully. <laughs> <laughs> we don't see that often. Well... I just got to start this this off because this film, did you immediately know what the look of it was going to be when you first heard that maybe you were going to be attached? And honestly, how did you get attached? How did how did the vision kind of come to be? Um, I got attached because Dave was looking for a, a director for the movie. He was, you know, he had this idea of like what he wanted to do, um, but he, you know, he didn't want to direct it because it was more of a narrative, not so much like the music video stuff, um, and. He has two producers that work with him on the music videos and the, and the video side of things, Jim Rota and John Ramsey. And uh, they were like, hey, you know, 
he, he basically, like, I have this idea. I want to do this movie, this horror film. So I have this pitch idea. What do I want to do? What do you think? And they're like, well, you should send it out, you know, show it to our friend BJ who does horror films. And uh, he's like, okay, check it out. So he sent me the, the, the pitch that he had. I read that. I kind of did my own like, okay, that's cool. But I think we should add some of this. I think it'd be cool if we, you know, give a little more backstory on this or that. And, you know, made a lookbook of like what it would look like, like like you were asking and and the vibe and, and the tone of what I thought it should be. Um, and then we had a meeting and I, I gave him the lookbook. We discussed it. We talked about like, you know, the movies, the horror films we like or the vibe of like what we wanted to do and what he wanted to do, what I thought would be great to do. And uh, that really was it. We hit it off really well. And next thing I knew, we were, uh, we were pre-pro. Um, look at the film is I, you know, I wanted to, I knew that, that Dave wanted to keep it the Foo Fighters kind of video vibe with like that fun, you know, which we always wanted to capture that. But I also wanted to make it so the movie had a dead serious look. So we, so it looked like a feat, like a, a big feature film, but also like a horror tone and let the funny play out through the dialogue, but let the vibe and the, and the feel of the film come through the lens and, and the lighting and how we were going to do it. So it was a dead serious looking movie. Well, do you feel like getting to work with bands like Slayer in the past helped you make this particular film? I think just being, you know, growing up as a kid, listening to heavy metal and listening to punk rock and, and, and things like that, I think that kind of like, you know, paved the way for me to be able to relate to bands like Slayer or the Foo Fighters or, you know, I like all, all different kind of genres of metal or rock and roll. Um, because I am, and I used to play in a band too back uh, when I was younger. I was in a punk band that toured for a couple of years. Um, so I think that like just the love of music, but also the love of the visuals and also the love of making movies kind of like got me more in tune with working with bands like Slayer, the Foo Fighters, you know, Exodus, things like that. Like that was, uh, you know, all kind of came hand in hand. So music was always just a big part in your life. And, and have you, I guess, <laughs> taken influence from music your entire career, you would say? Anything I do involves music and being getting up and going to get coffee. I crank the radio and like, it's like the, it's basically like the theme of my life when I'm going, depending on what I'm feeling in the morning. I've been listening to a lot of metalcore lately. So it's, it's just tons of double bass and just hauling butt down the PCH <laughs> to go get my coffees in the morning. But I, you know, when I write pitches or write ideas down, I always play something in the background, but it depends on the vibe of what I'm trying to write a lot. I listen to tons of film scores, like just like, cause that really gets you in tune. If like you're trying to make a feature idea, I like to go with like listening to that stuff, but uh, yeah, everything I do basically is very music related. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I don't, I can't live without music. You know, it's like that's the thing. Like I remember even the, through the pandemic, not even seeing bands live was just was such a big deal for me. You know, I realized how much I missed it. Having such a, I guess, unique cast, fun cast, but then there's even some serious members of that. How much of the casting process were you involved in, and are you overall happy that you have people like? jenna that's blowing up at the moment were you expecting yeah. that kind of, <laughs> of of a cast really yeah i mean it, it basically came from like people i knew and people that dave knew we kind of mixed it all together so like i did mcgruber and so i knew will forte really well and we've been friends and so i called him up and, and i was like will you gotta do this can you do it you know he's like i showed him what it was he's like yeah i'll be there let's do this you know so it was really great having you know a friend like carrie king also from the slayer stuff we call i called him um, you know, we got, you know, Lionel Richie from Dave, uh, you know, I, I got, um, you know, I got Jenna Ortega because me and my wife were going through audition uh, videos um, that Wendy, our, our casting agent sent us. And I kind of going through, through, and I wanted to make sure that I opened the movie with someone that could really like show like a heavy emotion um, to kind of set the tone of what we were about to get into. 
And we went through and we went through and we saw Jenna's, uh, we saw an audition with Jenna on a, not audition, but a performance of her in that show, You. And we were automatically were like, that's who we need to get. We got to get her for that. So we reached out and she, you know, loved it. And she, she came on board and lo and behold, man, she's, you know, we were lucky and I, and I hope that we get to also work with her again on another project where we give her more. Um, cause she was just awesome to work with and all around just kind of brought it, you know? Um, so that, it, it, you know, like also, uh, you know, Whitney Cummings, Dave knows really well, and it was nice to have improv performers to be able to improv with the guys, you know? So we, 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 we kind of also chose some people that could do that. Leslie Grossman, uh, was also a choice of mine from because I worked with her on American Horror Story. When I saw this character, I immediately saw Leslie playing it because she's, you know, when I, the season I did American Horror Story, um, she was kind of like the comic relief, but she could also go pretty evil. And I thought that actually, like, she would be perfect for the part. To me, this had like a pretty breezy runtime. How much is on the cutting room floor? Can we ever expect a director's cut from you? Man, you know, and I'm glad you said breezy because to me, I was like, wow, it's kind of a long, for a movie like this, it, I all, I always look at a time, I go, did we, is it too long? Did we make it too long? <laughs> it, it makes me feel good knowing that when people watch it, they actually don't get bored. And that's like very important to me, uh, especially in a movie like this. You don't want any dead spots. So thank you for that. Um, was there, yes, the movie was much longer and there are some things that got cut out that I really did like. Will we see a director's cut? I don't know if they want to do one. Maybe it would take a little bit of work to do things. Um, like the opening sequence used to be way, way gnarlier. Uh, I will say that. Like it was it was brutal. And I had to kind of trim that down. And there's some other scenes that got cut out that just kind of, it kind of, you know, it, it, some spaces got a little bit dead at times, like where we thought it was, it would like certain scenes would kind of slow down the train. Uh, so we just wanted to make sure there was a good, you know, good pace of a ride. And that, you know, the things we cut out didn't hinder the movie. Um, were they cool scenes? They were cool, but you know, we'll see. I don't know. We'll see if they want a director's cut. I hope so. Maybe. How early did you get the effects team in on this? Would you say that it was like right away when, when you were, I guess, attached to the film, were you trying to figure out what effects guys am I going to get? How, like, how, how did that all come about? It was actually funny because so Dave girl, he, he works with Tony Gardner at, at Alterian. Um, who he's who Tony's done a bunch of their music videos and done effects for them, like the run video that he did all the old age makeup because he did bad grandpa and things like that. Um, and and then uh, I use Tony on the Slayer videos, but I've also known Tony um, from other movies that I was I camera operate on. So we've all had a long lasting relationship. So it kind of was one of those things where we we all uh, we all kind of knew him, um, and so it was just the automatic choice that he was going to be the guy. So he was actually kind of already picked from the get go, like in pre pro. Um, and I think it's also a thing where, you know, Dave and everybody and, and, and the team like to have like the vibe of people that we all knew each other. So it's more of a comfortable place. Do you find it, I guess, important that you had such a background doing camera operating and, and just true behind the scenes kind of stuff before you ever got into the director's chair, I guess, to the magnitude that you are right now? Was that always an important thing for you? It was never meant to be that route. I just... I, when I moved uh, from Florida to California, I always was trying to go into directing. Uh, however, I didn't know how to get into the film business, so I started out as a grip. Um, and then I got into camera operating. And that kind of took me off the path of where I wanted to go because I enjoyed it so much. Um, long story short, you know, 
I think it's the best film school you could ever have instead of like just going and opening a textbook or listening to a professor when you're actually on set and you're working hand in hand with the actors and you're, and you're right next to the director, you actually soak up all the good and the bad things that can happen on a set or like good, you know, techniques that somebody uses or rad or, or just the overall vibe of how people run a set. Um, I think that's really helped me out in the long run, just being present and working directly with people. Um, it's also given me a set etiquette that I think is important that people don't learn in film school. If you come out of film school and you've never been on a film set, but you're like, I'm a director and you don't know people's jobs. I think it's a huge important thing to know what each department does and how long certain things take. When you know how long makeup effects take, it really helps you because you can plan around that. If you walk in and you don't realize that this makeup effects is going to take like you know, an hour to two hours to put on, but you're like waiting around for it because you just didn't know the time. You, you know, it helps you time manage also, like knowing what's going to work and what's not going to work. Uh, it also helps you with the gear that you're going to use for certain shots, I think. You know, you really you really know what works and what doesn't work. Um, and being around like other directors, I've taken, you know, like what I've seen as the positives and I try to take that and incorporate it in my own self on set as a director. Um, and I've learned from some of the best, I think. Well, what can we expect from you coming up? I'm in the process of figuring that out. I'm looking, I'm reading the scripts. I'm trying to see what the next path is going to be, uh, be it a horror film, sci-fi actions, action horror. I don't know. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to see what the next uh, road is. And I just am uh, trying to pick the right script. Uh, hopefully something awesome soon. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm checking them out. <laughs> well, BJ, thank you so much for coming on here. I wish you nothing but luck with this. Uh, it, it's getting a big theatrical release, which I think is, exactly what we need in theaters right now is a big fun horror film so thank you so much for coming on yeah i think it's i think it's the best thing to you know to go see and just to get away from all the the crazy real stuff that's happening in the world go to a theater and laugh and enjoy and have a good time with an audience and if you don't wait for it to come home and rent it on pay-per-view and get all your friends together and a bunch of drinks and have a good time and root it on and just have fun watching and i think the world needs something fun right now not so serious stuff Thank you so much, BJ. Thank you very much, Robert. Have a good one. You too. Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm trying to I'm read excellent. what is written on your T-shirt, but I'm not sure. Just analog. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you know what is written on our T-shirts? I don't. I'm a feminist. Oh, okay. Not okay. hysteric. Not hysterical, historic. And Maria? We all are with, I don't know, with quotes on our t shirts. Cool. Roses don't compensate the bruises. <laughs> In French. <laughs> so it's very 8th of March topical. In French. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm glad that, that everything is on your guys' shirts because this is a really political film. And I think that we need more political films like this because you jam-packed so much in this what would you say was your initial motivation to make this film thanks for appreciating this side of it we've always been social political and this is supposed to be the hardest type of cinema to be seen and viewed but uh, we mm -hmm. um, we think we managed to infuse enough heartwarming to cut the distance and to be to to be humorous as well and to, to show a bit of tenderness. That was our initial aim. And uh, we have two films in the world, Boys Don't Cry and Women Do Cry. Uh, <laughs> it's time to, to give the microphone to the women and to say what is there, like uh, what is inside. 
uh, and oh, we have and run out of battery. Okay. Uh, okay, so um, the iPhone, yeah, but uh, yes, that's uh, it's very sensitive thing and very important, uh, very current, and also very humane. Well, Maria, were you a little bit terrified that there was so much in, in one, <laughs> one film, to be quite frank? Of course I was. Uh, I was terrified, which made me want to be a part of it even more because we like challenges, or at least I like challenges. Um, but it, it was scary for me to see how it's going to look at the end because, you know, you talk yeah. about all of these things that are pretty unfair in the world. And we're looking into Bulgaria's place, Bulgaria's place, but problems like this in Bulgaria exist all around the world, and we're just shining light on them. Um, I was terrified, but I was excited to be a part of it because when you have this platform as an artist, if you can make a little bit of an impact on the bigger picture, it's it's crucial. It's an important. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. I was terrified, but also excited about it. And the film is making an impact, true, yeah. Uh, actually, yesterday, yeah. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned just women breaking into film right now in, in a really big way that we honestly haven't seen since maybe the 1970s. Do you think that this is going to be something that, that, is, that is pushed forward? Are, are, are you hopeful, I guess, in the way that the direction of, of I guess, the studios are going and the audience... I guess appetite is going, or do you think it's still going to take a little time before it really breaks out even more? It's going to take quite a long time still, but we are relieved we've seen the beginning and it's, um, it's definitely going in the right direction. But for example, in Bulgaria, there haven't been many women directed movies in the last two years. We're probably the only one. So it needs some time to go. Mm. What did you find? Oh, please continue. No, it definitely is going to need some time, but we're we're seeing that more and more and more women are accepted in this industry, which is important and it's crucial. And you can always somehow feel when a when a woman is behind the camera because it's about the sensitivity of the work that they are doing. And I mean. Look, even this year with The Lost Daughter that is directed by Maggie Jalen. Oh, we love it. You can also yeah. feel that movie in a pretty similar way than women, that Women Who Cry is doing it. And yeah. I'm mm -hmm. glad you mentioned it. It's, my, it's a very good one. What were some of the biggest challenges filming in Bulgaria and really revolving a film around that area? Well, basically, we're still oh, yeah. um, very retrograde society, like it's seen in the film. And uh, on many levels, we had challenges. And uh, it's to do with perceptions, with um, we are seemingly democracy, but uh, the problems are hanging there and they're very much swept under the carpet. And uh, we wanted to take them in the film to, to show them exactly how invisible they are to not use shock to not use straightforward messages but to uh, tackle it more carefully because once we used to be an emancipated society during communism and now things have gone 
fast to the reverse and um, uh, the world is uh, generally becoming a worse place. <laughs> if, you, if we talk about Bulgaria yesterday, we had a screening uh, and we have uh, screenings with meeting the, the crew, the audience and uh, the actresses uh, are there all the time and sometimes we, if we are in Bulgaria, yesterday was a bit of big crying of women they were there, went to the, sc- uh, the, the screening, and, but they were from organization which is um, dealing with domestic, dealing violence. With domestic yeah. violence. And they were real women with a lot of kind of But in fact, troubles. what you mentioned happened in Paris last night, night before we flew back Paris, London. And in Paris, two, two people cried in the audience and gave um, voice to their feelings after the film and it's quite quite astonishing even the french uh, press attaché was surprised and uh, what we'll actually will expect as well in the u.s also to feel the same and i'm sure it will be uh, the same because uh, although we are coming from different countries we we have this we are the whole mm, the whole society is the same, I think. Humanity is one, right? <laughs> yeah. The problems are the same everywhere. Well, what I appreciate about all of you as artists and, and Maria and the Borat thing, you're bringing, yeah. this po- you're bringing this political energy that I guess we haven't seen since the 1980s. And it's an interesting thing. And I'm curious on all of your takes on it because there was a big pushback in all of the arts community from the music scene to the film scene and everything else in the 80s when the right-wing rhetoric was amping up then. I haven't personally seen that in the way that it was back then now with, with the new right-wing and the, the Trumpism and all that kind of thing. Do you think artists are, are going to start taking, I guess, more of a stand and, and we're going to see this underground scene of of the 1980s and the the late 1970s quite frankly again or do you think that we just don't live in that society anymore there has to be you're you're right and we will be very glad to see more uh, more of this political movement going on among amongst artists because to us art cannot be anything but political it always has to be political and with what we see now in the shifts in Russia and everywhere, Ukraine, it's... Uh, and we're so glad you mentioned Borat because it's a person we've been looking up to for many years. Obviously, I mean, it's we're on different airplanes, but uh, it's so nice to, to kind of have even touch upon similarities. Um, we hope that uh, there will be room for political and social art. Yeah, and we are ready for that because also, maybe you don't know, but our company is called Activist 38. And we always go to this political thing because this is, as Nina says, what would be art without without the real movement and the real ability to change something in your society? You are not, uh, you're not separated by what is happening around Maria, and, do you have any thoughts? Um, maybe I want to say that you have to you have to reflect a little bit in a way that the society around you, the political system that are, that it is, you you cannot just ignore that 
that's part of life. And every single piece of art, whether it's a, a song, a book, a film, or even a painting, somehow should have, it's like a document of the time. So if you want to capture the time, you just have to acknowledge that this has been happening exactly at this time of the world. So it's relevant to exist and ignoring problems like, I don't know, the political system, the pandemic in a way, you're just, well, you're putting blinders in front of your face, your eyes, and just keep going straight to something that doesn't actually exist. Um, it's it's responsible. It's our our responsibility to to use our platforms to to shine light on things that are not mm-hmm. right in society and expose mis- misogyny and problems like I don't know different different treatments based on mm-hmm. where you're coming from, what religion you follow which gender you are and it's just not right but I'm, I'm positive that future generations my generation are pretty much ready to demand this equality that generations like Mina and Vesila have been fighting for and we're coming to this end to this beginning and entering this brand new decade where people will actually start demanding that that's not okay and not okay yes yeah mm-hmm and it's interesting, you mentioned the ultra-right, I think um, ultra-left, there is a circle where the ultra-left meets the ultra-right, and that's even more evident in um, the current situation the last 10 days. Well, what can we expect from, well, what can we expect from all of you coming up? Uh, from what? From... Uh... Oh, well, just what can we, like, what... I guess where do you see the film going from here, and mm-hmm. what and what uh, are the next projects coming up for all of you? For us, uh, we are so glad that the film has the la- kind of opportunity, probably the last moment before the door is closed for America. It's uh, it's a great honor that we could have, uh, we could all be there with Maria in South by Southwest, and our next project is of course. Um, political as well (laughs) and uh, it will have tackle issues in England where I've lived in the last 20 years and so we can let Maria speak Um, yeah I think we're all so excited to be together for South by Southwest which is going to be I think the first film festival in person this year Um, or at least in the states and I just cannot wait to, to see my peers and hug them and have some time. I have another movie with A24 that is premiering there as well called Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. And yeah, we're just promoting The Bubble, which is a comedy that we did with Judd Apatow last year that is also reflecting the time of what is happening when pandemic virus hit the world <laughs> and how people keep making art and how difficult it is through the lens of the comedy. But yeah, we'll see what is happening next well thank you all so much for coming on and uh, I hope to speak to all of you again you're always welcome on the show you're all friends so thank you so much thank you thank you and long live the analog <laughs> <laughs> the pixel power to the pixel right <laughs> thank you all so thank much you, have a good day Bye.
Thank you for listening. So I just want to run off some uh, films that you should probably keep your eye on from TIFF 2021, A Night of Knowing Nothing, that movie, A Night of Knowing Nothing. If this comes anywhere around you, please, please, please check this film out. It is absolutely brilliant. Biba, Earth, 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 Train Again, Attica, Petite Maman, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Solemn, Benediction, Drunken Birds. Some of the highlights from New York Film Festival included Dune, The French Dispatch, The Velvet Underground, The Girl and the Spider, Just a Movement, Passing, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, Intergalad, Come On, Come On, Drive My Car, Aheed's Need, Bergman Island, Parallel Mothers, Memoria, Tragedy and Macbeth, The Worst Person in the World, some highlights from Slamdance this year, It's Coming, It's Real, The Killing of Inuich Khan, Yelling Fire in an Empty Theater, Retrograde, Snow White Dies at the End, some highlights from Sundance this year, Cha-Cha Real Smooth, Meet Me in the Bathroom, Navalny, 892, Ridesville, USA, Leonore Will Never Die, Am I Okay, Sharp Stick, Happening, Emily the Criminal, and some highlights from South by Southwest include Bodies, 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 and of course, Women Do Cry. Check these films out. There'll be even more films in the show notes. Hope to see you here back next time. This concludes our broadcast day.